So even though we're in Hebrews chapter 10 today, let me just remind you what the overall theme of Hebrews is. So this is one of the problems when you're not doing it every week. Sometimes we kind of get we can get lost in the forest as we're walking amongst the trees. So Hebrews is telling us about the superiority of Jesus Christ. He he is superior over everything. In other words, in my own words, you could say that Jesus is best. He he is better than anything that was before. He's better than those Old Testament people that are mentioned there like Moses. He's better than the Old Testament institutions, like the tabernacle, that Old Testament sacrificial system. He's better than those Old Testament rituals. He is better than Old Testament sacrifices. Christ is better than anyone and anything else mentioned there in Hebrews. And so as we come to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10 here, we, we, we're coming to the great turning point of the book where the, where the human author and the Holy Spirit are showing us this explanation of the superiority of Christ to the application of that in the life of the persecuted Hebrews. And that's why the very first word in Hebrews 10 verse 19 starts with a therefore. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, ask the question, what is it there for? Alright? Well, that's the whole previous ten chapters. All this great theology you've been getting is now going to be applied to your life. What do you do with that Bible doctrine or that theology? What do you do with it? It's not just supposed to fill your head and make you feel proud and look how much stuff I know. You have to do something with it. Be a doer of the Word. So this is the great turning point. There's this shift now going on here. The shift can be stated in various ways. These are some terms that I've learned from all kinds of sources. For example, there's, there's a shift from doctrine to duty, or from creed to conduct, or from precept to practice, or you could look at it this way. It's going from instruction now to exhortation. All of that means one thing, by the way. <laughs> They're all saying the same thing in different ways. It, it means the Holy Spirit wants us to know how Christians ought to live. The Holy Spirit wants you to do something with that truth that you have learned from the first ten chapters. This passage helps us understand what it means to encourage one another. See, God wants you to encourage each other. But how do you do that? He wants you to understand how to do this. He wants you to understand the means for encouraging each other. And so we're going to look at the primary means for this process of encouraging one another. We'll also look at the goals for encouraging each other. And then what is the setting for encouraging each other? So let's see what God's Word says from Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We'll just look at that paragraph for today. So we're going to see the the primary means for this process. We'll we'll have a look at the the goals as well as the setting. But first of all, let's, let's look at the resources, if you will, for encouraging each other. How What has God given you and me so that we can do what God wants us to do? So these are the resources for encouraging each other. And and we're going to see, first of all here, what what are the privileges of the Christian. There's two privileges God's given us here, verses 19 through 21. First of all, we see that Christians have access to the presence of God. What have we seen all through the book of Hebrews? Did the Hebrews have access to God? An unhindered, total, 100% available access to God. Did they? No. (laughs) No. There was only one man, the high priest, who had access to God, and he was only allowed one day out of an entire year. One day of the whole year, and he's the only one who was allowed into that holy place, the most holy place. Christians have access to the presence of God, verse 19 reminds us. And it's not, it's not say, saying this as a, I hope this is true. Notice it's since this is true. Since you have this confidence. See, we have access to God because of a mediator. Mediator means a, a, a go-between. You need someone between you and God to make this possible. And this mediator was crucified, it says. See, this tearing of Jesus' flesh on the cross coincided with the tearing of the curtain in the temple. Remember, the Bible tells us the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem ripped in two from top to bottom as Christ's flesh was being ripped on the cross. There's this coincidence here. And so because of that, now we can walk confidently through the torn curtain of Christ into the presence of God the Father. Do you understand how awesome and a privilege that is? (laughs) The Hebrews didn't enjoy that until Christ died on the cross. And now we have 24-7 access. Any time of the day, any time of the night, 24 hours a day. God never takes a holiday. That's a beautiful privilege and a resource. (laughs) We need that so then we can encourage each other. But there's a second privilege of the Christian here. We see, verse 21, that Christians now have the great high priest. See, Christ's ministry wasn't just on the cross. The ministry continues as our high priest because verse 21 says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. This is a reality. 
Christ is our dual source of confidence here. Jesus is both the curtain and the priest. He's the sacrifice and the priest. He is both our access and our advocate. See, he, he makes the access possible, but he's also the one that, that go between that mediator and that advocate for us. And so when Jesus Christ came into the world, he established a new covenant based on his death and his resurrection. Praise God, there is a new covenant. We don't live under that old covenant that was for Israel. We don't live under that anymore. So he became the perfect sacrifice for sin. No longer do we need an earthly priest because Christ is our great high priest now. And so now you know what happens? All Christians become priests. You ever heard of that great doctrine called the priesthood of the believer? The priesthood of the believer? Now you are a priest. You're you're able to go through Christ to God the Father. Do you know what that means, by the way? Do you know what that means? We can enter into God's presence without fear of rejection, without fear of death. That's amazing. Because the high priest, can you imagine how scary that, that, that would be? You're only allowed into the most holy place one time a year. He had to be pure. He had to, he had to do all those rituals before... He went into the most holy place. He had to wash his hands in the the laver or basin and and, and sprinkle blood and do all this sort of thing. He had to make sure his clothes were clean. He couldn't just walk in dirty and so forth. He had to get right with God before he did that too. You and I can come into God's presence without fear of God rejecting us and God killing us. How is that possible? Well, I love the way 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 says it. There is, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the God-man. Because He is the God-man, two natures, God and man. And He's that mediator that go between. Now you can, you can now enter in without fear of rejection and death. Without Jesus, you you should expect rejection and death. But praise God for Jesus, our mediator. So how can we enjoy these privileges? They're awesome privileges. Access to the presence of God. We have a great high priest now. But how can we enjoy these privileges? Well, that's verse 20. Notice verse 20 says, It's only by the death and blood of Christ... Only by the death and blood of Christ. Because it says it's by the new and living way that He, that's Jesus, He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. So when Christ died on the cross, He made this all possible. He was the sacrifice. He was that Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. But you know what? His ministry continues on because notice it's also the life and ministry of Christ. You you need a risen Savior who continues to minister and intercede for you. This is amazing, verse 20, because it's a a new way, but it's also a, a living way. Let me just point out a few things here. Jesus said this in John 14, 6. He says it's the He is the only 
way. The only way. There is no other way, Jesus says, to the Father except through Him. There's not lots of ways to the Father. There's not lots of ways to heaven. There's only one way. It's exclusive. But the Bible says here it's a new way. A completely, if you will, a completely new situation from what the Hebrews experienced in the Old Testament. New situation. And it's a living way. Because why? Because Christ is living. Christ didn't stay in the grave. He arose. He is the life, He said. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. So because He's alive, the way is alive. It's also a way that Christ has consecrated for us through His body. That's how it comes to us, through His body. So how do we get to enjoy these privileges? By the death and blood of Christ, but also by the life and the ministry of Christ. And it's an ongoing ministry on your behalf. And so because of that, you now have access to God, and you have this wonderful privilege where you have a high priest who acts as your mediator. Well, the text goes on to tell us three duties of these privileges. See, you have great privileges, but there's some things you need to do. There's things that God wants you to do because of these things. Well, that's verses 22 and 23. And before we look at these, let me just point out uh, something in, in the Greek here about these three duties. I had a look at uh, one of my resources called The Complete Word Study of the New Testament by Spiros Zodiades. And he, he says that these three lettuces, uh, he calls it the lettuce sandwich. There, somebody's called it the lettuce sandwich. All right, so think, think of putting lettuce on a sandwich so, and then packed with all kinds of juicy meat between that. But this is a, a present subjunctive, subjunctive active duty, if you will. Whenever you see a present tense verb in the Greek, it just means the action is continuous. It is to be repeated. These aren't one-offs. These things you need to keep doing. Subjunctive mood in Greek suggests the action is subject to some condition. The action is subject to some condition. So you see all those, there's three lettuces. All right? It means there's, there's some condition based on it. But it, it makes an assertion about which there is some doubt or uncertainty or indefiniteness. It's connected with some supposed or desired action. There's something that God wants you to do. And whenever you see the active voice in the Greek, it represents the action as being accomplished by the subject of the verb. In, in this case, let us. Us. We, the believers, are to do this. And so there's three duties because of these privileges. Number one, Verse 22 tells us to draw near to God. Why not? Since you have a great high priest, you have this mediator, let us draw near to God, verse 22 says. Well, how do we draw near to God? Well, th this verse is packed. You want to know how to draw near to God? Look what it says. First of all, you draw near to God with, what, what does it say next? With a 
true heart. The true heart. In other words, you are to be sincere in your inner being. Sincere. You, you don't come with hypocrisy. You don't come as a hypocrite. You, you don't come with wearing a mask, you know, looking like something when in reality you're something else. In other words, this is a call for genuine devotion to God rather than hypocrisy. What else does it say? How do you, how do you draw near? Notice it also says in verse 22, in full assurance of faith. In other words, you come with trust. This demands a bold confidence that God has provided full access to His presence through Christ alone. You're you're not walking into His presence timidly. You're doing what the Bible says. You come boldly before His throne of grace (laughs) because of Christ. And so how do we get faith? How, How do we get this kind of trust? Well, the Bible says, number one, that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. But the Bible, how do we draw near to God? Well, it also says, you come with heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's drawing upon upon that Old Testament history where the priests were were always busy getting things dirty and cleaning. (laughs) Right? So they had to go around constantly sprinkling blood on everything, on people, on the furniture, (laughs) And then they had then they had to go get clean water and wash their hands and then go clean things again and, so that they could get it dirty again. And so that's that imagery here. The cleansing of our hearts, though, is not an external thing. It's an internal thing. Where it's referring to the satisfaction of God's justice. By the way, that's required before we can be acceptable to God. God's justice must be appeased. And so this phrase here, heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, it's giving us a beautiful picture of deliverance from our guilt. To guilt something internal. You can't just, you know, go go shower or go bathe or something like that on, on external and deal with something internally. The problem is our conscience condemns us and it reminds us of our guilt. And the guilt cannot be removed until that sin is removed. It's the only way to deal with it. So that's how you draw near to God. You deal with your sin. Deal with the sin, which Christ can only deal with. But it goes on to mention, there in verse 22, you need bodies washed with pure water. Now some think this is referring to baptism, but baptism doesn't doesn't deal with your sin. Sin, baptism is showing what God has already done with your sin. This has to do with how the Holy Spirit changes our lives. Now there's some cross-references that might be helpful here. This is showing that God is sanctifying us where we're set apart from our sin unto Himself. It's that same cleansing, by the way, that's mentioned in Titus 3, verse 5, where he talks about the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's what this is talking about. The washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, how does He do that? He does that internally. And by the way, it's the same in Ephesians chapter 5, where He says, We are washed with the Word of God. We are washed with the Word of God. Now, here's the point, my friends. Because the Holy Spirit is 
changing us on the inside, then we are able to come into God's presence with confidence. It's the only way we can come into His presence with confidence. The only way. So the first lettuce of this beautiful sandwich is let us draw near to God. The second duty of the Christian here is to hold fast your confession. Look at verse 23. says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. So what's the duty for the Christian here? A Christian is to maintain spiritual consistency. Because notice, a, a Christian is to embrace all of the truths and the ways of the Gospel. And you're to keep those things and hold those Don't give in to temptations. Don't give in to the enemies and the opposition that you're going to experience. Do you see that the Christian's hope here has substance? There is substance to the Christian's hope. This is not a, well, I hope so. No, this is, I'm hoping because there is a reality. This hope is, looking back, by the way, to other parts of Hebrews, there's some beautiful ones in Hebrews. One of my favorites is in chapter 6 where it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What does an anchor do? You ever used an anchor? You ever been on a boat? You ever been on a boat without an anchor? You ever been on a boat that has an anchor that isn't working properly? <laughs> right? Anchors are supposed to keep the boat steady, to keep that boat from moving around. It's very helpful when you're trying to fish to have an anchor that works properly and that's not being dragged along in the ocean bottom. And God says you have an anchor, a sure and a steadfast anchor, but this anchor is for not a boat, but your soul. And it goes on in Hebrews 6 to say, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, Jesus is your anchor. Are you holding on to him? See, I've been on a boat before fishing, and the rope doesn't do its job. (laughs) Right? The anchor's doing its job, but... If the rope isn't holding on to the anchor, what good is the anchor? It's just sitting on the bottom of the ocean. And the boat still floats away. You get, Hebrews reminds us, keep holding on to your anchor. Be the rope. Keep, keep tied on to the anchor. <laughs> now what is the manner in which we must hold fast? Well, verse 20 says, you must do this without wavering. Without wavering. See, you're to lay hold on Christ and never let go. Never let go. Not even for a split second. Don't stop holding on to Christ. He's your anchor. As soon as you let go, the boat starts drifting away. And that's one of those dangers Hebrews reminds us of. We can drift away from Christ. Now, how can a believer have that kind of unwavering hope? Well, notice there's one quality of God I've mentioned here. How can you have this kind of unwavering hope? Because God is faithful. 
And because God is faithful, then He's going to provide the strength and the stamina for you to endure anything through this Christian life. Anything that comes your way, you will then be able to endure it. For these people here, they were enduring persecution. God says, they are able to have the strength and the stamina to endure the persecution because God is faithful. That's how they can have this unwavering hope. But there's a third let us, a third duty for the Christian mentioned here in verse 24. Look what it says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, we are to encourage each other toward love and good works. See, God's calling us here to be responsible to one another. You understand that you are not to be an island. You are, you are not to be isolated. You are not to be alone. God doesn't want you to be alone. God has given you a large family if you're a Christian. A very large family. Not just people sitting in this room. You literally have millions of brothers and sisters. <laughs> and this command demands concentrated attention. The goal of this attention is to spur or stir one another on toward love and good works. And so if you're a Christian, the Bible says you have a corporate responsibility. It's not an option. Uh, yes, you are to look to your own soul, your individual soul, but God says you're to look to other people's souls. Look out for your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Help others who stumble. Help those who falter. Help those who fall. Help them get up. Bear their burdens. And so we must concentrate on the needs of others, not just our own. And by the way, the third major point here has to do with the goals of this process, which, by the way, are to develop our faith, develop our hope, and to develop our love. So notice it, it mentions let, in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Are you doing that? Do you ever think about how you can help another believer? You ought to be thinking about this on a regular basis. You ought to be praying about this. God, what would you have me do? How can I help this brother? How can I help this sister? See, you sin when, you, when, you're, when you're doing nothing and you just concentrate on your own life. It's wrong for you not to talk to other brothers and sisters. It's wrong for you not to look out for their soul and say, how can I pray for you? How can I help you? It's wrong. And so the, the text gives us some goals here for encouraging one another. How can I do this? What should I be doing? What is the goal here? Well, what should happen to Christians when they're actually meeting together regularly and encouraging each other? Well, here's what the text says. Number one, when you're doing what God's talking about here, number one, we will be growing in our faith. You're going you're gonna to grow in your faith. Look what verse 22 says. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Christians should meet together for mutual encouragement so that you can grow in your faith. 
Are you thinking that, by the way? When, when you're meeting with other Christians, and by the way, that's not just on Sunday, okay? You understand, I hope. But whenever you're meeting with Christians, are you thinking, how can I help this brother or sister grow in their faith, and how can I be encouraged by them to grow in my faith? Think about it. See, faith is an essential ingredient in a relationship with God, right? Because we'll find out in Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So a growing and deepening faith then reflects that God is hes not just some mere academic idea. Oh no, He's a person. He's a real person in whom I can actually communicate. You can communicate with Him and therefore you can have a relationship with this person. And when we gather together regularly, this is a, this is a call here then for us to encourage one another to approach God in such a way that shows that we are trusting Him for every detail of our lives. Are you? Are you trusting Him for everything? You need to be growing in your faith, number one. But number two, we should grow in our hope. We should grow in our hope. Because verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Although hope is a distinctive quality it is always clearly aligned with faith they there's this this trinity if you will not not god trinity but there's there's three words you'll you'll often see them grouped together in scripture and faith hope and love they go together often in scripture as they are here so hope is is focusing on what a christian believes see hope has a reality hope has a foundation Hope has something of truth there. And this truth is clearly illustrated in other parts of Scripture. You'll see the word hope a lot. Uh, For example, you can see it in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. Uh, It's interesting, in his second letter, Paul emphasized... Paul's emphasis was different uh, in in the, the second letter as it was opposed to the first letter of Thessalonians. He wrote about their faith and their love, but he said nothing about their hope. That's interesting. Why did he do that? Well, someone had unsettled hope by telling them that the day of the Lord had already come. (laughs) What? Some of them were thinking the day of the Lord had already come. Jesus had already come. I'm left. Now what? So Paul immediately corrected that, that false teaching, that false impression. And it's interesting, in chapter 2, he encouraged the believers there with correct doctrine. And even though they had growing faith in God, and they were uninformed of that truth, that doctrine. They didn't understand that Christ hadn't come yet. And that disturbed some, and their hope was wavering. And therefore, another goal of mutual Christian encouragement then is to help us hold un swervingly, unwaveringly to this hope that we're supposed to be professing. Is your hope consistent with what you profess, what you claim to believe? should be. We ought to be growing in our hope. It ought to become stronger, not weaker. But we also see here we should be growing in our love. Because verse 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love. 
So more than any other quality, mutual encouragement among members of the body of Christ should spur one another on toward love and good works. That's, that's not an easy thing to do sometimes. It can be difficult. What's going to stir you and motivate you to do this? It's going to be love. And so Paul highlighted that truth when he wrote 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter. That's, that's the great motivator for why we do what we do, love. But love is not automatic. If it, if it were something that was just automatic and natural, the Bible would not have exhorted these Hebrew Christians to consider how to spur or stir one another on toward love and good works. See, we need help. <laughs> we need help. Sometimes we grow weary. Sometimes we want to quit. It gets, it gets difficult. I, I don't want to do this. And so I need you to come to me and, and, and stir me up. Spur me on. Encourage me. Sometimes you need that. Love needs to be nurtured and developed. We must be careful. And you, might, you have to give careful thought, by the way, how we can actually motivate each other then to practice the Christian virtues, like love. There's, there's right ways to do this, and you, you could do something that is right, but you can even do it in a wrong way. So you need to think about that. Ask for God to give you wisdom in how to do that. But verse 24 also says that we ought to be growing in our works. Are you growing in your works? How are you doing? Are you, are you evaluating yourself? Are you growing in Christ? Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? You know, if you've been saved for 10 years, your, your, your 10th year of salvation should look different from a baby Christian. Just like those of you who have children, when your child is 10 years old, you expect your child to look and act differently than when they're a baby. Right? You should see some growth. There should be some evidence of growth from a baby to a 10-year-old. Well, it's the same for a Christian. We ought to be growing in Christ. Are you? Are you, are you being stirred by each other and toward good works? Are you a stirrer? yourself are you going around stirring other people encouraging them toward good works i'm I'm hesitant to 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 name specific things here lest you think that's that's the only thing you can do there's lots of ways you can stir each other up toward good works but pray about that think about that how how can you do that and then number five we should grow in our encouraging we should grow in our encouraging because verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Think of it this way. God wants you to be a positive irritant. <laughs> you know what irritants do? Think of an oyster, for example. See, the oyster, when it gets a piece of sand or some other kind of irritant in there, Sometimes a piece of sand can be that irritant. And what does the oyster do? You know, he takes a lemon and makes lemonade out of it. Right? He he starts coating that piece piece of sand or irritant and turns it into a, a pearl. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to be a positive irritant and go into someone's life 
And sometimes, sometimes uh, we, we don't take that very kindly, and we, and we, we might think, man, that, that person is acting like a piece of sand or a, or a rock in my shoe. You ever had a rock in your shoe? That can be really annoying. That, that's an irritant when you have that rock in your shoe and you're trying to walk and you... It might only be really small, but it's... Wow, it's, you keep feeling it every time you move. God wants you to be a positive irritant. How can we do that? Well, here's a few things I've thought of, okay? You can pray for each other and, and do it by name and be specific. Hopefully you've, you've talked to your brother or sister and said, how can I pray for you? Hopefully you have a relationship, a deep relationship, a meaningful relationship with that brother or sister. You, you know what's going on in their life. You know their temptations. You know their strengths. You know their weaknesses. You know the specifics of their life where you can do that. Are you in a good example to that brother or sister? Sometimes things are caught instead of taught. That's the beauty of a of a relationship. Like Proverbs says, you can be that iron that sharpens the other piece of iron. So a friend sharpens the countenance of his friend, right? See, that's the beauty of having a relationship. Sometimes we don't even know it. We're affecting other people just by who we are. So be a good example. Are you internalizing the Bible? Allowing God's Word to flow through us. Uh, the way I like to say it is, are you being pickled by God's Word? Do you understand that, that illustration, being pickled? If you've never made pickles, maybe you don't get it. But see, I love dill pickles. And the beauty of dill pickles is it takes it takes a gherkin or a pickle to me, which is not that enjoyable, and turns it into, into a beautiful masterpiece. And I know some of you are turning up your noses because you hate dill pickles. That's fine. Bear with the illustration here. But it takes that, that simple little gherkin. And over a process of time, through the salt and the, the vinegar and and the dill, and and whatever, it turns it into a dill pickle. It changes it. And and you know what? When I pull, several months later, when I pull that dill pickle out to eat it, it's changed all the way through into the middle. And it's beautiful. It's yummy. It's tasty. It's, mmm. Be pickled in God's Word. God's Word ought to be changing us all the way through. (laughs) Are you a positive irritant with your words? Are your words ministering grace to the hearer? Are they like salt? You can change a life through your words. Your tongue is powerful, as James says. It can be a destructive fire or something that is a a, a blessed water fountain. Which is it? So we ought to be growing in our encouragement. But verse 25 also tells us here the The setting for encouraging one another. The setting. Now this isn't the only place this can take place, but notice what verse 25 says. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So God's telling us one specific way that that the... Encouraging can take place is we ought to be joining together corporately in a church setting. The assembled body, local body in this case, ought to be assembling together so that we can encourage each other. 
Oh, boy, this gets into sticky stuff with some people. You know, some people like to be isolated and say, well, hey, I can be a Christian all by myself. (laughs) Well, let me ask you this. Can you be a Christian without going to church? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, you can be a Christian without going to church. And I guess sometimes I I like to do what Jesus does. Jesus often answers questions with giving another question, (laughs) a a rhetorical question. Here's a rhetorical question. Can I be a husband without going home? Well, yeah. But can I be a good husband if I don't go home? No. (laughs) I can be a husband, but I can't be a good husband if I don't go home. That's not a good relationship. That's kind of like what, what the Bible is saying here. It is possible to be a Christian, but you can't be a good Christian if you're not doing what God says to do here, right? Somebody's come up with a list of uh, kind of comparing this. Here's, here's what it would look like for a Christian to not go to church, to not assemble in, in a local body of, of Christians or believers. It's kind of like a student who will not go to school. Or a soldier who refuses to join the army. Or a seaman on a ship without a crew. Or a businessman on a deserted island. An author without readers. A tuba player without an orchestra. A parent without a family. Or a football player without a team. A scientist who does not share his findings. Or a bee without a hive. A bee can still be a bee without a hive, right? But what's the point? God created the bees to have hives. God created Christians to assemble together with other Christians. So though true Christianity involves a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we need to understand it's also a corporate experience. Yes, it's an individual experience. God designed it to be a corporate thing. And so this passage highlights that fact for us. Christians cannot grow spiritually as they ought to in isolation from each other. It's not the way it works. Belief in the Lord's imminent return here became an important motivating factor in further motivating here toward the the corporate life of the church. One reason you may think it's not important to be in church every time uh, the church assembles is maybe because well, some people just don't really believe that Christ could come back at any time. Did you notice where verse 25, how it ends? We are to do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day, I believe, is referring to the return of Christ. Do you believe that day draws near every day? Do you believe Jesus is coming again? We should. Jesus promised He would, and He will keep His promise. And so every day it's getting closer. And so this this should be a motivating factor. So let me just give you a few reasons why you should attend church services, okay? Why, Why God's people should corporately meet together. Yes, you can worship God privately, wherever you are. But here's some solid reasons for uh, worshiping God corporately and meeting together so you can stir each other up, encourage each other toward love and good works. I'll just give 
I have a huge list that I've gained from many different places, but here's a few to think about. Number one, uh, we, we see in Revelation chapter 1, for example, there's this special presence of Christ in the gathered church. And Christ, there, there in Revelation, He's walking amongst the, those local churches. Those lampstands represent those local churches, and it's a beautiful thing that we can, we can meet Christ in a special way in corporate worship. Yes, you can meet Christ because Christ, God is everywhere. But it's a beautiful thing when we come together. It's, it's, it's a little different, isn't it? And, and so it should be. Number two, if you absent yourself from Christ, you will hinder your ability to glorify God in worship. Congregational worship makes possible an intensity of adoration that does not as readily occur in solitude, or in other words, by yourself. Corporate worship provides a context where passion is joyously elevated and God's Word ministers with unique power. Again, read Hebrews. It's a beautiful thing where I I love uh, being with God's people. Uh, I need that that time where you can encourage me, where sometimes I, I, just san- I just can't seem to do that by myself with God. But God's people over the years have done that many, many times in my life. And the Holy Spirit's used you and my other brothers and sisters and done for me what I needed. The Holy Spirit knows what I need. The Holy Spirit knows what you need. And number three, giving up meeting together restricts one's theology and doctrinal understanding. In Ephesians 3.18, it shows us this, but great theological truths are best learned corporately. It says there in Ephesians 3.18, with all the saints. Theology is to be done by the assembled church. One of the four core activities of the local church in Acts 2.42 is they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine, or Biblical Doctrine, if you will. So the, the assembled local church can come together and devote themselves to, to, to sound theology, Biblical Doctrine. It's great that we can do that. We should be doing that. And then number four, the development of the soul needs others. For example, the virtue of love needs others for its development. You know the second great commandment, Jesus says, number one, the great commandment, love God. Number two is to love others as we love ourselves. So loving others, think about that. How can you love others when you're by yourself? (laughs) Right? You need others so that you can obey that command, don't you? You need other people with you to love them. You can't do that in isolation. Developing love here is a communal activity of the church. All those one another commands of Scripture have to be done with other people. You, you need other people with you to do that. You can't love them. You can't forgive them. You can't bear their burdens and so forth without other people. It doesn't work that way. So those are some, just a few. And if you want to know, i got 21 reasons. <laughs> I'm not going to share all those with you. But let me just uh, give you three quick applications we think about this. Number one, we need to think about where we're looking. Right? So number one, look to God. Look to God. 
the text reminds us we must draw near in prayer to God with a wholehearted sincerity. Draw near to God. Something you ought to be continually doing your whole life. Remember, this is, this is a continuous action. It's in the present tense. Keep doing this. Don't ever stop doing this. And number two, look to yourself. You have to hold on to that anchor of hope that God has given to you. He's given you Christ. Keep holding on to Him. Keep possessing Him. He's yours. And so when even when Satan comes, <laughs> I, love the, uh, I love verse 2 of that song. When Satan comes and he tempts you to, to despair, and he tells you of the guilt within, what do you do? Let go of Christ, right? No. <laughs> when he comes and he tempts you to despair, you keep looking to Christ. Don't ever stop. Because you have an anchor in heaven. And then number three, yes, look to God, look to yourself, but don't forget, my friends, you look to others. This is not an option. It's something we must keep doing. We must devote ourselves to the corporate church and do everything we can to provoke each other to love and good works. And some people think provoking, well, that's negative. Well, not in this context. Stirring and, and, and uh, this kind of a stirring or being a positive irritant is something that God wants you to do. So let me remind you of what Good News Baptist Church Covenant says. If you've never read this, I encourage you, you can get a, a copy of our Constitution, which has within that a cov- the covenant of our church. And within that covenant, you'll see these scriptures. Hopefully this sounds familiar from the scripture. Number one, that we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It comes from Ephesians 4, verse 3. See, notice the we, the corporate nature of a church covenant. You, you can't do this in isolation. You have to be with God's people to do this. I, I hope this is your heart, that you would work and pray for unity. Because disunity does not bring honor and glory to God. And in number two, this is coming from Romans 12, that we will walk together in brotherly love, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another. Are you doing that? That's part of a Christian's responsibility. It's not an option. You find that in other places in Scripture, not here, not just here in Hebrews 10. But then in Hebrews 10, we see the third part of our covenant states that we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. May God cause us to be faithful to His wishes, His call here. See, it is impossible to be a healthy Christian while we voluntarily absent ourselves from the assembled church. Yes, there are times where you will be providentially hindered from meeting with God's people. That's okay. This isn't a 100% thing. There's, you know, if you're in the hospital and you can't get out of the hospital, you don't, you don't have to have a guilty conscience here. Okay? You've been providentially hindered from assembling with God's people. But if you're not providentially hindered, 
then you need to think about this. Sometimes we need to think about what is our priority. The Holy Spirit is pleading with us here not to make this kind of mistake because He knows in isolation we're not going to survive long. Negligence can destroy us, so we need to beware. So in summary, my friends, Hebrews reminds us Jesus is superior. He is the best. He's the theme, in fact, of the entire Bible. Some have said He's on every page. Maybe not the word Jesus on every page, but Jesus says it's about Him in Luke 24. And so without the message of the Bible, you and I would have nothing to which to encourage each other. What are we going to encourage each other if it wasn't for Jesus? It's because of Him, as it says in verse 19 and 20. Since we have Him, His person and His work, now, now we get all these great privileges, and we can come with the right goals because we have the right resources. We would have no purpose for meeting together if it wasn't for Jesus. See, our knowledge of God would be so limited, we would have no rational object for our faith. It wouldn't be real faith. No, there would be no doctrine to build our hope on if it wasn't for Jesus. No way of even knowing the meaning of what love is if we didn't have the God of love showing us what love looks like. And so my friends, encouragement, encouraging each other, is the Christian's duty. It is the Christian's duty. So the call, the exhortation for you is, go be a positive irritant. Go be a positive irritant for your whole life. May God enable us to do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the book of Hebrews. We're thankful that you haven't just given us a bunch of truth and a bunch of theology, but you tell us how to live out that theology. May we understand that you want us to encourage each other. And may we so firmly believe this that we, we spend our money doing this, your money. We spend our time and our, and our prayers, our thoughts, our efforts, our blood, sweat, and tears doing what you've called us to do here, encouraging each other. But as we do this, may we do it with the right motive. May we recognize who Jesus is and what he's done coming with the right resources so that we would do the right things. May we understand our duty. May we understand these resources. May we understand the right goal in the right setting. May we not just do these things out of duty, but may we do them because we love you and we also love people as we love ourselves. Would you enable us to believe the Scriptures and to put them into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.